Well, good evening, and um, it is such a joy to be here again with each one of you, and I trust that you came with a heart to receive and step into a greater level of what the Lord has uh, for you. You know, if you just show up to um, check a box, you're going to go home without when you could go home full. Right? We don't want to be in lack, do we? Go with me to the Gospel of... No, let's go to Matthew first. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And last week I told you that we would have some discussion. So did you do your homework? You go home and figure out the answer to this question so that I don't have to? Matthew 5.44 is where we're going to jump into, and if you're new here with us or not familiar with these cards, you can find them on the table in the back, and they're, it's called Biblical Answers to Your Everyday Life Questions, and um, on those cards you can write down a question, and then we may or may not address it uh, here publicly and talk about it. So This particular question reads this way. It says in Matthew 5.44, which we'll read in a moment, Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Of course, God is love, and He and Jesus love everyone. How should we view Jesus' strong chiding to the scribes and Pharisees when He called them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, serpents, brood of vipers? Weren't they His enemies? How does this relate to tyrannical enemies? So in our home groups, we've been going through a book called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, an amazing book. If you're not in a home group, get a hold of the book, read the book. It's a lot more exciting than the title sounds, all right? And in that book, we are looking at the proper response of, to tyranny in, in all sorts of levels and places. And... So that's what prompts this question. So the question is, how how does Jesus' response, how is that love? Is that love? Is it not love? So so what do you think? Again, the question is, is how um, Jesus said, let's read uh, 544. He says, I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So that's what Jesus said. So how can he call the scribes and Pharisees all these names and it be love? Let's hear your thoughts on it. Just be bold, speak it out. We'll discuss it. And unless the first one is such a good answer, it just silences all the other... <laughs> Because he speaks the truth. Because he speaks the truth. That's a great answer. The devil, the devil ruled them. The devil ruled them. They were the ones who were supposed to be showing what God was like and about. And they were not quite that. No, they were not. <laughs> he was speaking in the spirit behind it. Okay. That's a good point. Jesus called Peter the devil once. Well, he addressed Peter as the devil. Let's put it that way. He said, get thee behind me. 
So he wasn't afraid to look at evil in the face of an animal now. And evil is sin. And they were in a sin of unbelief. Their king was in, standing in front of them and they refused to believe that. Okay. So does, does love care about your feelings? It takes love to tell the truth about somebody. That's right. I would say that until you locate where you're at, you can't move from that. So because he loved them and wanted them to be moved to a place of, you know, freedom and all, he's got to say it point blank. Say it like it is so they can move from that place. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could say it a different way. Um, love does care about your feelings, but that does not dictate the truth it will deliver. I think that watering down the truth isn't enough. So he was speaking to the heart of the issue and to water it down or, or say any other way would be not loving them. It would be, you know, co-signing what they're doing without mm -hmm. speaking what needed to be said. That's good. Okay. And the purity of Jesus' heart for them makes a big difference than our hearts. That's key, isn't it? So does that mean that just Jesus should talk this way to people? Because he's Jesus? I mean, if Jesus lived today in our society, and he called a bunch of people fools and hypocrites and snakes, and I mean a whole bunch of snakes, a brood of vipers, you know, a whole nest of snakes. If he was standing here and talking to people that way today, wouldn't most Christians say, well, that's not love? You're calling them names. So is it possible that we have a very skewed understanding of what love is and what love does? That our society has crept into our thinking a lot more, this political correctness. And I'm telling you, political correctness is straight from the pit of hell. It doesn't love truth. It does none of those things. And so in this, we see that maybe love actually is something that our society has not truly embraced. We like forms of love. Especially when we can use it to manipulate you to do what we want. Wear your mask or you're not loving people. Right? So, how can you and I, how does this relate, how how do we speak truth and not lose our hearer, the one listening? You ever notice how Jesus answered questions again and again? He would often ask questions. But then when someone would show up and, and he would see into the situation, see they're just trying to trap him, sometimes he'd ask a question, other times he would address them for what they were and the spirit they were operating from. Here in John 3, we're going to just leave the question there because the whole sermon is really about, has to do with this question. So let's go over to John chapter 3 in that famous 16th verse, for God loved the world in this way He gave His... Actually, if you would put it up in the uh, NIV, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 21 in the NIV. Okay, they're having some technical difficulties, so they'll get it here in a moment. 
So what I want you to be watching for is where in your own life have you allowed our cultural understanding of what love is and how love operates, be it tolerance, be it putting up with things, be it whatever it is, right? Whatever your understanding of love is, how does this, how does it fit with the things that we're going to read? And so we're going to look at what is condemnation, what is conviction, to convict somebody and just go all the way down through here. <clears throat> Did we find it yet? All right, for God loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, you've heard me say this pretty often if you attend church here, that the greatest expression of love is giving. God loved the world so much that He did what? He gave. Gave, alright? Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world that He might judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Verse 18, Anyone who believes in Him is not judged, but anyone who does not believe is already judged, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And let's, let's keep right on going through these. This then is the judgment of the light. Is the judgment, I'm sorry. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Now verse 17, just read it to you out of the Holman here now. For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You know, there is a world of difference between conviction, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and condemnation. Jesus came to provide way of salvation. He didn't come to condemn. If they don't believe, they condemn themselves. He's not condemning them. And you say, well, what is the difference between conviction and condemnation? Well, in John 16, where Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit, He said when the Holy Spirit comes, He called Him the Counselor. When He comes, He is going to convict the world about sin. He didn't say He's going to condemn them. He's going to convict the world about sin. Here's what convict means. Are you ready? To convince. Convince. I mean, it has other meanings in it as well. To admonish, to tell a fault, rebuke, reprove. But it really means to convince. The Holy Spirit convicts you. He is convincing you of your sin, of your need to move closer to Him, to deal with something. Whereas condemnation means to pass sentence. You've already judged the issue, you've passed sentence on it. Condemnation is the past sentence and to separate, to put asunder is the meaning of it, to damn. So the difference between conviction and condemnation, 
Think about this when you go to correct somebody or call them a hypocrite or a snake or a den of snakes. Conviction will convince someone of something. Condemnation, on the other hand, separates, right? It pushes apart from. The Holy Spirit, when He convicts you, He's pulling you to the Father. When condemnation comes, on the other hand, it's trying to push you away from the Father. It's trying to put in wedges and make separation and see you're, you're separated, you're over here. You could never, you this, you dirty dog, you are a snake. Yeah, I must be. You know, and then he just jumps on top of it and it just grows. So condemnation separates or puts, brings separation to something, whereas conviction is pulling you to the Father. One separates you from the Father, the other pulls you to the Father. Now, if you're talking to somebody, there's no reason, absolutely no reason to try to make somebody feel bad about what they've done or what they've said. Feeling bad, I mean, they probably already feel badly about what they've done if they understand that it was wrong, right? They probably already are dealing with the issue of not feeling good about that. So we should not try to make somebody feel bad, badly about themselves. That's condemnation. Let's go to Romans 13. We're speaking of Jesus came to convict the world. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. But He said, I, didn't, I came to save. I did not come to condemn. In Romans 13, look here in verse 8. It says, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves has Loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, do not owe anyone anything except the debt of love. That's, a, that's an outstanding debt that we should always continually view as a debt that we owe. Right? Now, do not owe anyone anything is not talking about you can't borrow money. Some people would like to make it say that. But if you agree to pay back a loan on certain terms and you are meeting those terms, you don't owe anyone anything. Right? You only owe them after you were supposed to pay the rent and did not. Or the payment on your house and did not. Now you owe. There's a debt against you that you're owing. So whether you borrow the money, I'm not telling you you should go out and borrow money, but what I am saying is this verse is not telling you you shouldn't borrow money. It's saying that if you borrow money, make sure you're making the payments. All right? Don't owe them anything except love. All right? He goes on. Let's just jump down to verse 10. He says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Does no ill, one translation says. So now here's how to judge yourself when it comes to correcting somebody. Correction or discipline without love is abusive and is cruel. Correction or discipline without love is abusive and cruel. Correcting and discipline because I'm right and you're wrong is without love. Correcting and disciplining for the their good is love. Did you know love is one of the riskiest things? 
I mean, true love will risk relationships, will risk all sorts of things for the sake of truth. You know, when your friend, a dear friend, or, or someone you admire or look up to and asks you about something in their life, is there anything that, that I could be doing better? Do you see anything in my life? And if you see something, but you're too afraid to tell them because you don't want to risk the friendship, that's not love. They ask, they want to know. Right? So, love is willing to risk. Love is willing to put itself out there. I mean, the greatest risk isn't Jesus. He took great risk. He put Himself out there. He suffered for you and I, and we may or may not even receive it. It may or may not do us any good. That's an incredible risk. So, how do you judge yourself? Well, am I doing it for their good or because it makes me feel better? I don't think Jesus said, you bunch of snakes, because it made him somehow feel better. I think he was presenting them with truth. See, one of the tragedies of the PC culture is that we reject truth for the other person. We won't even present them with the truth because, well, we don't want to offend them. So we haven't even given them an opportunity to reject or receive the truth. We just decided on their behalf. So I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, you know, put myself in a position where I might risk the friendship, risk the relationship, risk my job, risk X, Y, Z, whatever it is. So am I doing it for their benefit? Or am I doing it for my benefit? It's really what you ask yourself when it comes to correcting somebody. Is it for their good or my good? And I've found that when my heart is right, I really don't want to go give the correction to the person. And if the Lord's telling me to, we may have to have a conversation, right? Because I'm like, you know, can't you just tell them? <laughs> Why do I need to be the one? But it's those times where I'm like, boy, you let me have Adam. Those are the times I need to check in here and say, okay, I need to just be quiet and go do something else right now. Let's go to Hebrews 12. God is love. And as we mentioned before, Jesus is the exact expression and nature of God the Father in the earth. What Jesus did in the earth was the exact expression of His perfect will. What it would look like in the earth. And at one point, He picked up a whip, drove people smooth out of the temple... And they were convinced he'd use the whip on them, so I suppose a few people got the lick. Like, ooh, he means business. We better go pack it up, boys. Right? They were like, he's not messing around. He has a whip. The Bible says he drove man and beast. So it wasn't suggesting there was some force behind it. And those that would say, well, Jesus would never do anything. Uh, anything violent, they simply don't know the truth. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, He commanded them to go to war. To do acts of violence. So can love do an act of violence? Absolutely. When it's for the benefit of others. But not for ourselves. See, what does love your enemies... What does He mean when He says this? Let's go, and before we go to Hebrews 12, we're not, let's go to um, 
Luke chapter 7, 6. See, I think that by and large, we have created Jesus to be this guy in a, a white robe holding a little lamb. He's kind of soft-spoken, clean-shaven. <laughs> but I think he was a little different than that. If we read the Bible, right? He wasn't afraid to step out and rock the boat, right? And to bring correction where it was needed. But he also is the one who said this in, in chapter 6 and verse 27. He says, I say to you who listen. So are you listening? Love your enemies. One of the ways that you know that you love someone is the next line he says, do good. This is how you would know. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But see, in our culture, even though we have political correctness and all that going on, we also have my rights. Don't tread on my rights. And how, let's just keep reading here. Verse 29, if anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. If anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks from you. And from one who takes away your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But if you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good. There it is again. Love is an action. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful or be compassionate, just as your Father also is merciful. And then he goes on and he talks about forgiving, and which is all a part of this. How many know that if you have an enemy and they're, they're persecuting you or they're being mean to you, then you, you probably there's an element of forgiveness that's going to have to be involved there as well. Now, the one thing that is very important that we understand the difference, all these things he lists, uh, being struck on the cheek, for example, that is an insult in their culture. To strike someone on the face, to slap somebody is an insult. Much like you might hurl an insult, of, a verbal insult to somebody today, to the, or, or maybe today you, someone might flip, flip you the bird, right? insults you, you shouldn't do that, right? Don't that come from you guys, right? But I'm saying other people might do that to you. If they do that to you, that's an insult. That's where you are long-suffering. Well, how dare they do that? Or if they cut you off in traffic, or they butt in the line in front of you somewhere. That is an insult, comes across as insulting. That's not an attempt on your life completely different. Nowhere in Scripture did Jesus teach that, hey man, when they, when they try to kill you, lay down, take it, don't resist, just know this is, this is good. 
No. In fact, he said when they strike you on the other cheek, that would have been an insult in their culture. Today, if someone struck you on the cheek, well, they assaulted you. All right? But it was different, <laughs> different in their time. He says, turn to him the other. Also, well, when you look at Jesus' example, was he our perfect example? Well, when they struck him on the cheek, he didn't turn to the other side and say, you missed a spot right over here. Come on, give me your best one. He asked, why are you hitting me? You can read about it in John. Why are you hitting me? Oh, well, then they told him, right? And they ended up crucifying him. Paul, when he was struck on the cheek, he was in court session and some guy standing beside him, someone he doesn't know, bams! Hits him across the face. What does Paul do? Turn and say, oh, I'm your meek and humble servant. Strike this side too. It's feeling left out. <laughs> no, he didn't. What would Paul follow the teachings of Jesus? Yeah, so maybe we've made them. Jesus, one of the things to understand is he often taught in extremes. If you don't hate your father, you can't love me. Well, was he meaning we should hate our parents? No, but... Your love for your parents and your love, your love for God needs to trump everything. Other love in your life, right? And so, if it came down to choosing between one or the other, you're going to choose your love for the Father. So, what did Paul do? He gets struck and he goes, called him a whitewashed wall. Who do you think you are, you whitewashed wall? Why are you striking me? And then someone says, that's the high priest. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know who you were, he says. The Word says we shouldn't speak evil of our leaders. And so he corrected himself right there. Right? So love your enemies. Do good to them. I, I'm going to push a little bit further here yet. In Luke chapter 26, I think it's 26. I hope there's 26 chapters in Luke. Um, <laughs> okay, somewhere in the Gospels, all right? I'm going to go find it. Luke 24, good. Someone's spirit-led enough to know where I'm going with this. Luke chapter 22, nope, they weren't. Luke chapter 22, let's look down in verse 35. So they are just getting ready to go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, this is where Judas betrays him, right? So they're, they're finishing up supper. They're getting ready to head out. And um, he just got done predicting Peter is going to deny him three times. In verse 35, he also said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever does not have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. And the disciples said, Jesus, you know better than that. You know that we would never lift up a sword against somebody else. That goes against your teachings. How dare you contradict yourself? Oh, your Bible doesn't say that? Mine doesn't either. Let's try again. So he said, go out and buy a sword. Whoever doesn't have one should buy one. Verse 37, but I t For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. 
It is enough, he told them. So we have them getting ready to go out into the garden, and he asks them for swords. Now, they're on the edge of a city. This is not a place where wild animals are slaughtering people. So he's not telling them to bring the sword along to protect them from a tiger out there. In fact, if you'll skip all the way down to verse... um, 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests, now they had showed up and they had arrested him, temple police and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? See, he's counted among the criminals. And that's how they're treating him. Now, if Jesus would have been against any, any lethal force or any lethal weapons, he would have said, but you know you should never come out against robbers with a lethal weapon. You should leave it at home and kindly and gently um, entreat them. But that's not what he said, is it? No. He, he said it as though it would be expected. That's how you treat the criminal or the robber. With clubs, with swords, with weapons. Alright, so now let's go back up where we were. So he asked them, you know, you better buy a sword if you don't have one. They said, we have two. He said, it's enough. And he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob was there, and one of the twelve, named Judas, was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And Jesus responded, now some translations really butcher this, Uh, the Holman that I have says no more of this, Um, the literal translation is let it go until now or allow me this, allow me this. Why would he say that? In fact, let's go over to Matthew chapter, let's try 26 in Matthew, maybe that's where I was thinking. Yes, Matthew 26. Let's just begin reading in verse 51. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in place. He didn't say put your sword away because you know we don't do that. You know we don't use lethal force. You know that we don't even carry those kind of weapons. Put it away. But he didn't say that. He said put it in its place. He considered there to be a place for a lethal weapon. Put it in its place, which would be in the sheath. Because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Now some people have stopped reading right there. And the way I grew up with the understanding in the Mennonite culture was that we did not um, 
any kind of military force, any kind of violence, anything like that was strictly forbidden because we were taught what was called the doctrine of non-resistance. And that if anyone resists you, you never resist back. And you belong suffering. And, and that teaching has its strengths. Alright? There is a side for that. Yet, not when someone has an attempt on your life. Jesus didn't teach that. But this particular verse was taken and used for anyone who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. As a blanket statement of military involvement or protecting yourself with a sword, weapon. I mean, if, if this was written today, it'd be gun, right? But the sword was their personal weapon for protection back then. So, let's not stop reading there because that would, do, that would discredit, do a disservice to what Jesus is actually saying. Verse 53, the very next thing. He says, Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and He will provide me at once more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Therein is why He said, if you try to stop this, you're going to die by the sword. Because this is the plan of God. And you will not survive trying to stop the plan of God. That's why he's telling them all those that are going to take the sword to try to stop this event are going to perish with the sword. He wasn't saying anyone who ever takes a sword in any endeavor in life. Not what he was saying. Right? Okay, so all of that being said, one of the reasons I believe if you just look at this that Jesus wanted to have some swords along because He wanted a means of defending Himself. Why would I say that? Jesus made the statements very, very clearly. He said, no one takes my life from me. I decide to either lay it down or pick it up. No one makes that decision for me. Now, if he did not have the ability to defend himself out there, then someone made the decision for him. But not only did they have natural means of defending themselves and could have, but he also had the ability to call down angels. He's like, you know, we've got this, these swords, we're not going to use them. And, and don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels and I mean, there'd be nothing but smoke and ashes. Right? So he didn't say that um, what so many have tried to make him say, that violence would be wrong. He's just saying it was God's will and I'm choosing to lay down my life. I'm choosing. No one's forcing this. Are you, are you clear on that? Okay, now we can move on. Let's go to Hebrews 12. So, remember, what we started out on is talking about the correction that Jesus gave. The names He called them. The truth He spoke to them that they didn't like. Let's look here in verse 12. Hebrews 12. And uh, verse 5, I mean, not 12. Verse 5. says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. He said, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and punishes every son whom He receives. Now, this word punish, the literal translation is flogs. Or whips. It's not talking about just a nice little verbal reprimand. 
The Lord disciplines the one He loves and flogs every son whom He receives. That's what the word means. We go, okay. What did He tell us to do here? Let's go back. Verse 5, don't take it lightly. Don't faint because of it. Now, why would people be tempted to faint if it was just such an easy thing? I know, this is like sledding uphill, but sometimes <laughs> that's what you have to do. You know, we need to learn to love reproof and rebuke. How many love reproof and rebuke by a show of hands? By faith, yeah. Hmm. Nobody raised their hand. Let's go to... Well, actually, let me say this. Now, let me keep reading. Verse 7. Endure it as discipline. The flogging he was talking about. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but He does it for our benefit. See, there it is again. Correction, rebuke, discipline, chastisement, whatever it is ought to always be done for the other party's benefit, not for your own satisfaction. So that we can share in His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. You know, the amount of correction that any individual needs is going to depend on the amount of the direction they're going. Let's say it that way. You know, we have a 16-year-old now and we've been teaching him to drive and and riding over in the passenger seat. And um, so he, as he's driving, one of the things that we've been teaching him is small corrections. Small corrections to the steering wheel, right? Because if, you know, a big correction to the steering wheel at two miles an hour is no big deal. At 70 mile an hour, it's an entirely different story, right? And so, but is there a time if you're riding in a vehicle that a huge correction could be beneficial? Is it pleasant? No. You ever have someone slam on the brakes and boy, you fly forward and that's not pleasant. A huge correction just took place, but it was a whole lot better than running into the back of the other person, right? So while it doesn't seem pleasant at the moment or even painful, but it's for your benefit. You know, you're driving down the road and suddenly there's a hard swerve in the car. What's going on? Well, I just avoided that deer that jumped out of the woods. Oh, well, we're really glad that you bumped my head against the window, right? <laughs> that you swerved and didn't just hit it. So, depending on the amount of correction needed is, or 
depending on the direction you're going. Maybe you're running off the road and you have to make a huge correction. Um, but it's going to depend, you know, if you, if you, the higher speed you go, the smaller the correction you'll make. And that's on airplanes or cars. You know, an airplane that flies from here to Oregon, 90% of the time is not on the correct, true, straight line direction that's going to hit their destination. They're constantly making very small corrections to that aircraft. And as we keep it pointed in the general direction that we want to go, eventually they get there, but they're constantly making corrections. If they just went up, aimed it, put in the coordinates, and then didn't do anything else, I mean, who knows where they'd end up. California instead of Oregon, right? So, just the tiniest correction, you don't even feel it happening to the airplane. I'm not talking about when they go around a corner. I'm talking about once you're in straight flight. There's constant little minor corrections happening constantly that you don't even feel because they're on top of it. It's the corrections you feel are when we need drastic change of direction. Now, let's bring this back to you and I and to our friends and our family. And You know, many times the correction that comes to you and I we would like for it to come straight from the Lord to us and no one else. But usually it comes through other people. Often. Let's say it that way. The Lord will correct you by the Holy Spirit and that's how He would like to do it. But sometimes we don't listen to that. And now someone else gets used. You know, when my head tells my hand to reach out and touch the podium, for example... You know, that did not, the, the, the instruction didn't travel wirelessly from my brain straight to my hand. It went through other body parts that actually carried the information and the instruction to my hand to make a movement, right? Well, the body of Christ is the same way. Many times instruction comes from the head through other body members and parts. Maybe through your spouse. Maybe through a coworker, Maybe through... Someone else in the church. Maybe through your pastor or, or one of the other ministers. So when correction comes, learn to understand that it's not just horizontal. It's, it's probably coming vertically. You say, yeah, but they didn't deliver it right. They called me a snake. <laughs> well, are you? See, so many times we allow someone's delivery to decide whether or not there's truth in it. Man, if they can deliver it to me in the best, kindest, gentlest, around-the-corner type way, I might receive that. But if they just straight up tell me to my face with a whole bunch of bluntness and not much tact, why would I listen to that? They clearly were wrong. Just look at their delivery. Right? Isn't, isn't, haven't we all had those thoughts or seen this? But a mature child of God sees past the delivery. Remember Peter? He's out there walking on the water. Did any of the other disciples do that? He is the only guy in history outside of Jesus that we know of, at least in Bible, let's put it that way, that's recorded in Scripture, that walked on unfrozen water. 
I say it that way on purpose because I've done the other, right? <laughs> but walked on water. Peter's the only one. And then he gets his eyes off Jesus. You know the story. He begins to sink. Jesus rescues him and then says, why did you doubt? Why are you of so little faith? And Peter is offended and, and the next week at therapy, he's <laughs> like, come on. I mean, I'm the only one out there walking and Jesus never said, attaboy, good job. At least you were willing to step out. No, he goes, where's your faith? What, you saw it? I was out there walking. But isn't that how most people would be today? Many? But no, he received it, right? And he grew in faith. See, your humility, it takes humility to receive correction. Your humility is your protection from deception. Humility is your protection from deception. Protection from destruction. Because if you're humble, no matter if the delivery is good or bad, I've gotten really good corrections that were like, you know, wow, you wanted to thank them for correcting you because they just did it so nicely and wonderfully and, and everything. And then I've gotten corrections that were like, I'm pretty sure they hate me. <laughs> but humility will say, let's examine it. Did you know that your enemies will tell you things that your friends probably won't? Truth about you that your friends don't have enough courage to tell you, but your enemy doesn't care if you don't like them, so they'll tell you. Some of the best criticisms that I've received have been from people that don't like me, because none of my friends would tell me that. Did it feel nice? No. Did I want to flush it? Yes. But any time that I receive correction or criticism, what I have covenanted with God to do is, Lord, I will bring it to you. Whether I like it or not, I will bring it to you and say, Lord, is there any truth in this? And if there's truth there, allow Him to show you. And sometimes He's like, no, forget they said it. Other times, like, you know, not this part here, but this part over here. They're, they're really right. Like, hmm. Right? So then, so your humility, be, be humble, be teachable. Remember the uh, Syrophoenician woman in, in Matthew 15 that she came to Jesus and her daughter was possessed. And Jesus called her a dog. She's calling after him and he's just ignoring her. Finally, the disciples are like, hey, do something about her. And Jesus' response says, I was just sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she calls him, she says, man, she, says, uh, she comes up and says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. She's talking like a Jew, but she's no Jew. See, some people know how to talk right, but their heart still isn't right. They're just looking for what you can do for me. And um, so Jesus gives her this correction. He said it isn't right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. That lady didn't go off and seek a counselor. He called me a dog. I, I once heard Keith Moore say this. He said, what do you do when the Lord calls you a dog? He said, you bark. <laughs> Don't argue with him. But she said, yes, Lord. She received it. That's humility. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And he's like, man, your faith is great and gave her what she came for. 
And her daughter was delivered. Even the dogs. Yes, Lord. That's humility. That's what that looks like. So anyone here want to raise their hand that they like correction and reproof? Okay, we get, we get a few hands. We get a few hands. Let's watch the effect of the Word on you and I over the next several minutes. Alright? Let's go to Proverbs. Let's say, I gladly receive correction. I gladly receive correction. <laughs> Sounds so glad, joyful. Proverbs 12, let's look at verse 1. Whoever loves instruction, the word is chastening. Whoever loves chastening or instruction loves knowledge. Who here loves knowledge? Well, then you've got to love the chastening. He goes on and says, the one who hates correction is stupid. See, I'm not making it up. It says it. Look up at the screen. The one who hates correction is stupid. Ooh, maybe we need to make some adjustments on the inside quickly, right? Over the next several minutes. Let's look at verse 15. A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens, that means to hear intelligently. To hear intelligently. Whoever listens to counsel is wise. Do you want to have knowledge? Do you want to be wise? Then you will like the chastening of the Lord and rebuke and correction. Let's go to chapter 13. Look down in verse 18. Poverty and disgrace come to those who ignore instruction. Who wants poverty and disgrace? Who wants to sign up for that one? Nobody? Okay, no poverty and disgrace. Here's how you get it. If, if someday you decide, I want poverty and disgrace, here's how you do it, all right? Ignore instruction. That's how you do it. Ignore instruction. But the one who accepts correction or rebuke or reproof will be honored. Be honored. Who wants to be honored? Yeah, I mean, we should all want, want that. That's a good thing. The one who accepts, receives, takes a hold of, allows it to make change in them, hears intelligently with the intention to change, they are the ones who will be honored. That's humility. Let's go over to chapter 15. Look down at verse 5. A fool despises his father's instruction. That's what a fool does. But a person who heeds correction listens to it, is sensible. Let's look down at verse 31. An ear that listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. In other words, they're going to be amongst the wise and be one of them. They're wise. Like if they're with a bunch of wise people, you won't be able to tell the difference. They're at home with them. The one that gives an ear to life-giving rebuke Anyone who ignores instruction despises himself. Whoa. And whoever listens to correction acquires good sense or heart. The fear of the Lord is wisdom's instruction and humility comes before honor. Let's go over to chapter 1. All in Proverbs here. Chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. 
So the wise, they like rebuke. They give ear to it. They receive it. Verse 20, wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. This is what she says. How long, foolish ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking and you fools hate knowledge? If you turn to my discipline, a more literal translation would be if you repent at my rebuke or reproof, means if you change at it. That's what repent is. It means to change. Then I will pour out my Spirit on you and teach you my words. Then. Not before. Then I'll pour out my Spirit and teach you. You know, I've told you the story before, but how that we had, uh, we were asking the Lord where we should send our children to school. This was back in 2011. And um, we knew that it was going to be a private school. We just didn't know which one. We had it narrowed down to several. And I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord, Lord, which school do you want us to send? At that time it was just Adrian. Uh, which school do you want us to send Adrian to? And um, I hear a whole lot of nothing. Just silence on the line. No answer. Nothing. Now there was a school that, that was going to give us a scholarship and so financially it was a lot better. That one was. But if I make my decision based on that, I'm just making a money-based decision, not a spirit-led decision. And so I wanted to get it right. And so finally, um, we needed to have an answer to the school the next day. And so I went up into the bedroom and I said, I'm not coming out of here until I hear from the Lord. Because we need to know. And so I prayed and I said, Lord, whatever this blockage is, I know that you said in your word that the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And I'm one of your sons and I'm led by your Spirit. So show me why I am not hearing from you on this. And immediately, like um, a recording playing on the inside of me, I started hearing all the word curses that I had spoken out over school as I was growing up. I mean, I really disliked school. I wished the schoolhouse would burn down. I would, you know, said all these horrible things about the school. And um, I just didn't like it. Well, I hearing myself say all these things about school. I hate school. I wish the schoolhouse would burn down. All these things. I immediately recognized what that was. Those were word curses that were standing between me and hearing from the Lord on the issue of school. What I had once cursed and hated was standing in the way between me and my ears being open. So I immediately repented, changed. said, Lord, I repent for saying that. I break those word curses in the name of Jesus. Father, I ask You to bless the school I grew up in. Bless the teachers that, that I cursed and hated when I was young. And I repent for being so foolish. And I said, Lord, where do you want us to send Adrian to school? And immediately, he says he'll go, uh, he'll go to Hinkletown and his teacher will be Miss Rogers. And it was so immediate, so clear, so instant that I thought, I just must be imagining things. And so it took me three times of asking the same question and hearing the same answer. Now, I did not know at that time, I did not know any of the teachers' names or anything like that. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, well, there's a real simple way to check this one out. 
let's go see what the first grade teacher's name is. So I called the school, and they said, oh, her name is Jackie Rogers. And so what the Lord had told me was, and that was also the one that was going to give us a scholarship and was going to be much better for us financially. So now we got the blessing of being in that school, right? But on hearing from the Lord. Why do I tell you that story? It's because in verse 23, what I just read, if you repent at my reproof, then I will pour out my Spirit on you and teach you my words. Will teach you my words. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I in turn will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you, then they will call me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but I won't, they won't find me. Because, here's why, they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in counsel, and rejected all my correction. Rejected all my correction. They will eat the fruit of their way. In other words, they're going to reap what they sowed. Be glutted with their own schemes. For the waywardness of the inexperienced will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and be free from the fear of danger. You've heard the Bible verse quoted about my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's really, and many times that quote stops right there, but it's, it's not the whole verse. Or not the whole thing he's saying. Let's say it that way. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, not because they didn't have opportunity to know. The next line says, because they have rejected knowledge. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge because they rejected it. They had opportunity, but they rejected it. And now their destruction comes. So are you ready for reproof and rebuke? Now remember, fear stops progress. Fear will keep you from growing. How many know you have opportunity to fear when it comes to rebuke? I don't know of anyone. I've never met a person that enjoys being wrong. I certainly don't. And when I discover I'm wrong, I as quickly as I can change it back to being right. Because I like to be right. I don't like to be wrong. However, a stubbornness and pride, pride is, the, is one of the main things here that we have to guard against. Pride will keep you from receiving the correction, the rebuke, the reproof. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. No matter the delivery, to say, hmm, I'll check into that. I'll consider it. I'll pray over it. Their version may not be correct, but it may have an element of truth into it. So check it out. I once had this guy working for me that I was not, uh, at this point in time, it was before I had started our hardwood flooring company in Colorado, and I was working for another company, and I was their foreman, and we hired a new guy. Now, I'd already had years of experience at this point, and the new guy had exactly one year of experience with another company. 
And in that year of experience, he had learned more than any of us all combined, right? And he thought, right? And um, he thought that he, he would constantly, the first day, he's trying to say, well, we should do it this way. We should do it that way. And um, we told him, no, here's how we do things like this. And we want you to do them that, yeah, but this other way is so much faster. And this is just stupid. And, and I said, okay. I said, here's what we'll do. You take that room over there. I'll take this room over here that is the same size across the hallway from each other. You do it how you want in your room, but this is what the end product has to look like. And I'll do it like I'm telling you to do it. Oh man, he's going to just, he's, it's, it's not even going to be a comparison, man. He's going to be, well, by the time the end of the day was done, my room was done, his was half done, and we had to tear a bunch of it out because it just wasn't right. He ended up losing his job and got fired. All because pride would not allow him to grow. Pride would not allow him to receive. Pride would not allow him to say, maybe there's a better way than the one year of experience that I have. But fear and pride are, are two things that can stop you from growing because of correct when correction comes or reproof comes or rebuke comes. You know, I've told the story before of the lady where I grew up in Missouri. One of our neighbors lived a mile or two away uh, down the dirt road. They had this couple acre pond. And the ladies of our, our church had a gathering there. They had a sewing or something that was going on. And so one of the ladies, Clara, she pulled her van up to the edge of the pond and dropped the front wheels into the pond. She pulled forward too far. And so then, of course, she tried to back out and couldn't back out. So Dan, he was the guy that owned the property, he goes and gets a tractor and hooks the tractor up to the van, tries to pull the van out, and he just can't budge her. Try this way, try that way, change angles, you know, try different things, and he just spins. He can't pull her out. Finally, he's like, well, I guess uh, I need to go get a bigger tractor. Maybe the neighbors, you know, will have maybe their tractor, we can use it. And that was about the point that Clara, she leans out the window and she said, what do you think it would help if I took my foot off the brake? <laughs> Dan says, huh. He goes, yeah, let's try that. That might work. <laughs> and uh, so he pulls her right out. But see, her fear was stopping progress, was stopping growth was stopping her deliverance. And I understand that when, because we don't know the other person's motives. Do they have my good in mind or are they just selfishly giving this correction? Instead of sitting there in that judgment, just hear it and then go let the Lord sort it out for you. Alright, good. Alright, let's say I love correction. I am not a fool. I receive and listen to Instruction. Lord, correct me where I need it. You know, there's many, many examples in Scripture of correction and it being received or not received. And just very quickly, I'll mention two of them. The one you can find in Samuel 15, the other, 1 Samuel 15, the other one you can find in uh, 2 Samuel 12. And in 1 Samuel 15 is the story of King Saul and how he did not follow the Lord's instruction to him. 
The Lord had said to him by the prophet, the prophet showed up, and in verse 1 of chapter 15, the, uh, the prophet says to him, you know, I've, ordered, I've put you in as king. This is the Lord. It's, he has a right to speak to Saul this way. This isn't just some ordinary citizen coming up and talking to King Saul. But this is the prophet Samuel. And he says, the Lord said, and he gives him all these instructions about what he's supposed to do, and he's supposed to destroy the Amalekites entirely. Everything they own, everything. Well, Samuel shows up after the victory, and here the king is still living, and the best animals are all kept alive. And the ones that were useless and, and trash, they'd slaughtered those. And Samuel says, what is this? What, what's all this noise of the animals that I'm hearing? And Saul goes, oh, the people. See, right here, he's having an opportunity to turn to repent, but he's blaming. And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? That's not a new thing. Why did you eat of the, of the tree? Oh, well, the woman you gave me. Why did you eat, woman? Well, the snake. And the snake goes, well, and there's no one standing there. <laughs> so that whole blame thing, right? Well, he asks Saul, what's going on? And, and Saul says, oh, well, the people did it. And they kept these animals to sacrifice to the Lord. They're going to give the Lord a gift. And that's where when Samuel said, you know, obedience is better than giving gifts. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And he went on and he said that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Wow, that's strong language. Mm -hmm. Stubbornness and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry, he went on and said. And, and you know what happened? Saul didn't receive it. He says, oh, well, come with me and, and, and sacrifice anyway. All the people are watching, come with me. And Samuel goes, no, I'm not going. And he turned to go and Saul grabs his coat and his coat tore and prophetically, the word of the Lord came to Samuel in that moment. And Samuel says, um, just like you tore this garment, the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you. And even at that point, Saul is not repenting. He's just like, oh, well, come on, the people are watching, come where? Okay, fine. Samuel goes with him. Goes to the sacrifice. And you know his end. The kingdom was torn away from Saul. He uh, goes out and is killed on the battlefield. He's paranoid, he's scared, he's going to a witch to try to hear from Samuel who's died and gone to be with the Lord. So that's one version. He didn't obey. Do you know, this is just a little side note, teach your children to obey, whether they understand or not. Understanding why is not a requirement. It's nice to know sometimes, but I mean, how many of you have done things that the Lord's told you to do that you don't know why? You just obey. Obedience is better than praise and worship, than gifts, than sacrifice. Obedience. Success is measured by obedience. Not by the outcome. By obedience. Did the Lord say it? Then obey it. So when a child says, you tell a child to do something, your child... And they say, why? If you'd ask my children, sometimes I just say, because I said so. You don't need to know why. You need to obey. Teach your children that. You will do them a service. Because the Lord's not always going to tell them the why. And this is training for listening to the Lord and taking orders. Taking orders. Right? You know about that. 
our friend here, he was in the Air Force. Sometimes orders come down that you just don't understand why, but you still do them, right? Follow the orders. You know, if you have to understand it before you do it, you're walking by sight, not by faith. So then, over in 2 Samuel's, the other account of David in chapter 12, you know, he sinned with Bathsheba. You remember the story. And Samuel shows up, not Samuel, Nathan, the prophet of the Lord, shows up. Tells David a story about a rich guy that has all kinds of sheep and flocks and herds and is like extremely wealthy. And then in the same town, there was this, this poor guy that lived there that had only one ewe lamb. And it was like his daughter, and it slept with him and drank from his cup, and, and like it was the only one his family had. And the rich guy had this guest come into town, and so he didn't want to take from what he had to give to the guest, so he went and killed the little lamb from the poor neighbor that that was the only one he had to give to the guest. And he tells David, King David this story, and David, man, immediately pronounces judgment and says, well, that guy deserves to die. And the prophet of the Lord looks at him and said, you're the man. And what was David's response? Immediate repentance. There was some consequences that still had to be worked out because of what he had done. But immediate repentance. His kingdom wasn't taken away. His son was allowed to take the throne. And King Solomon, one of the most famous kings ever, right? Because one was humble and received the correction, the other was not. If you are correcting somebody, remember, especially with your children, ignorance needs instruction. Ignorance needs education. Ignorance needs the how-to. Rebellion requires discipline. You knew what to do, you didn't do it, here's the discipline. All right, but in love, right? Let's go back to where, where we started this. How do we do it? We do it with their benefit in mind. Not because, well, it annoyed me. Not because I'm tired of it. Not because you deserve it. But because it's going to teach you. You know, this, this account in Hebrews, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close by reading that again. Hebrews 12. I'm going to read it to you this time, though, from the Living Bible. You know, one of the things we've taught our children in, in, with correction, especially when they'd get a spanking, is that before we'd give that spanking, because did you know spankings are biblical? If you think you're not going to do that to your children, the Word says you don't love them. I didn't say beat them. I didn't say abuse them. But the Lord created a real soft, fleshy part right back here. <laughs> that the right amount of pressure somehow just brings wisdom right into that little one. <laughs> and so we would always ask our children, do you know why this is happening? Yeah. And if they were not clear, then we would have more instruction first. Because this, because you disobeyed. Did you know that I said this and this? Yes. But you didn't do it. No. That's disobedience. That's why you're getting this. And this is going to teach you to obey. 
This is going to teach you to obey the first time. This is going to teach you to that obedience is more important than what you feel like doing. Okay, and then after we're done, now the question comes back to what did you learn? What did this teach you? This isn't just spanking and anger, and that's just being abusive. It takes time to give discipline correctly. And usually it comes at the most inconvenient times. Those that have been parents for a while, they know what I'm talking about. The Living Bible says this, Have you quite forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as a child? He said, My son, don't be angry when the Lord punishes you. Don't be discouraged when He has to show you where you are wrong. For when He punishes you, it proves that He loves you. When He whips you, it proves you really are His child. Let God train you. For He is doing what any loving father does for his children. Whoever heard of a son who was never corrected? If God doesn't punish you when you need it, as other fathers punish their sons, then it means that you aren't really God's son at all. That you don't really belong in His family. You know, I discipline my children. I don't discipline other people's children. You know why? Because they're not my children. I don't have that authority and right in their life. But if you're a child of God's, then you receive His discipline. Since we respect our fathers here on earth, though they punish us, should we not all the more cheerfully submit to God's training so that we can really begin to live? I like that. His discipline will bring you life. His correction brings you life. Our earthly fathers trained us for a few brief years, doing the best for us that they knew how. But God's correction is always right and for our best good. That we may share His holiness. Being punished isn't enjoyable while it is happening. It hurts. But afterwards, we can see the result. A quiet growth in grace and character. I remember being a child. The worship team, you can come up if you'd like. Or whether you like or not, come up. <laughs> I remember being a child and knowing that I had violated the rules. And I had been discovered. And I knew the consequences were on the way. And that dread, that impending judgment, and then when it was over, the release that would happen, the clearing of conscience, the freedom, because it was done in love. I was never abused in that way. It would hurt. It would hurt a whole lot. But I remember at the end of every... There wasn't one spanking I ever got that my mom didn't have tears coming down her face too. And that spoke to me. I realized she didn't enjoy this. And I remember one time, I violated the rules and um, I'm not going to say how. It was in one of those inconvenient times. We're ready to go out the door. We're already late. We're supposed to be meeting my grandparents and we're going with them on a week-long trip. And so because it's time to go, um, we didn't have time right at the moment. My mom said that I'm going to get a spanking and um, 
but not right now. Man, I dreaded the ride to my grandparents' house because I knew there's where it was going to happen, you know. So we make it to Grandpa's house and we load up and we leave. Oh man, mixture of relief but still dread because now it's still in front of me, right? And every day I dreaded this. Waiting for the shoe to drop. I didn't know my mom had completely forgotten about it. It was such a long trip. Every night I knew it was going to come. And it just wasn't. Finally, we get home from the trip, and I was by this time so miserable. And I told my mom, I, I went and reminded her, I said, can we just please get this over with? I've been miserable for a week. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I completely forgot about it. So why didn't you say something sooner? Well, I was half hoping you forgot, you know, but... She goes, well, I think you probably had sufficient punishment already, right? For a whole week of dreading this. She never did give it to me. That's called mercy. Not getting what you deserved, right? We serve a merciful God. He is not looking to get one over on you. He is not looking to punish you. He is not, he is a good God. He is kind and severe. That's what scripture says in Romans. His kindness and severity. That's who God is. So there is the severe side. If we refuse to listen, if we're in disobedience and we go our own way, expect some severity. He's going to encounter you. He's not just going to let you go on your own. He'll send, if you won't listen to Him, He'll send people to you. If you won't listen to them, then He'll send more people to you. And eventually the path gets darker and darker. But Proverbs tells us the path of the just gets brighter and brighter. What is light? Well, light is understanding and knowing, and it's God's understanding and knowing. God is love and He is light. And so allow Him to bring light to you. Even when it's delivered by some earthly person that just doesn't seem to like you very much. But be humble and say, okay, I'll check into that. There might be some truth in it. Alright, can we do that? So who can say, I am willing to receive correction? Alright, the Lord will tell you that. Or He'll bring it to you if it's necessary. Stand with me if you would. Father, I thank You that You're so full of patience and love for us. That Your mercy is new every morning. That we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get Your grace. The things that You've given unto us as gifts that we didn't deserve. Thank You for being kind to us in every way. And Father, I thank You too for the correction that You have given us in the past. For the discipline. Father, I ask that You would just speak to us. Help us to recognize when You're the one giving correction. That when it's coming, when there's truth inside of it. Lord, help us to be speakers of truth. And that we wouldn't give in to fear or to pride, but we would be willing to risk great things in Your name. 
that we would be willing to love those around us in truth and sincerity and love. I thank you for your boldness in this. I thank you for opening up our eyes and ears to truth in all things that your light would grow inside of us more and more and more. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. And amen. All right, let's worship him. our praise, our worship, our obedience. Someone say that. I give you my obedience, Lord. My obedience, Lord. Well, hallelujah. So now there's only one part left to do. Let's go do it. Because it's not the hearer of the word that gets results. It's the doer of the word that gets results. All right, so be doers of the word. One way we love God in this house is we love on each other. We tell each other the truth. In love, all right, always in love. We have a, a time of fellowship downstairs. Everyone's invited to it. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Church of the Word International. We're so glad that you're here tonight. Praise the Lord. I'd like to encourage you in your worship tonight in the Word of God from Psalms 27. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? It's a good question, isn't it? Two good questions. Who should I be afraid of when the Lord is on my side? He is my strength. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise up against me, in this I will be confident. One thing. Everybody say, one thing. 
that I desire of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and, the, and to inquire in his temple. This is one thing that David wanted more than anything is to seek after and come into the house of the Lord. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he will hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall my, my head be lifted up above my enemies around me. Therefore, all these great things that God just promised right here in Psalms 27. Therefore, I will offer in his tabernacles the sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto my Lord. Why? He's a good God. He's a faithful father. He's an eternal redeemer. He's everything that you need and desire. He is worthy of our praise. Amen. Well, let's all stand up together as family and let's obey the word of God. deliverer, soon coming king. He's our everything that we need. We celebrate you tonight, Lord. We welcome you in our midst. Move among your brethren. Touch the hearts, the broken hearts. Touch the bodies that need healing and wholeness. We welcome you and celebrate you in this place tonight. Jesus, we love you with an everlasting heart. Father, we're so grateful that you loved us, that you gave us your best, your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting, eternal life with the Father. We just thank you so much for how much you love us, how much you thought about us, and we thank you and give you all the praise and glory tonight. Well, one way we love God, the Father, and Jesus is by loving one another horizontally. So turn to your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you're here tonight. Thanks for coming. The children may be dismissed at this time. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome again to Church of the Word International. Do we have anyone here that's here as a visitor? We'd like to recognize our visitors. So... If this is your first time, can you raise your hand and we have a few in the back. Welcome. Hey. Good to have you with us. I just now see you. 
Awesome. We got friends from CRI in the back row, so make sure you make them feel welcome. All right. Uh, who needs a cash envelope for your giving? Raise your hand. Um, if you're giving by check, you can make it out to CWI. If you're giving by credit card, do fill out all the blanks. How many know that the Lord is interested in increasing you? He really is. He's really for you and for your success in every area of life. Aren't you glad about that? We serve a God that is so in love with us and so for us. Um, let's read in Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs if you have your Bible. You know, he's given us ways to increase. Just because that's his desire for us doesn't mean it automatically just falls upon us. We have a part to play. You know, we can participate with laws of increase he's put in place or not. It's our choice. So uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 says this. It says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. In other words, this is an individual who's very generous, and they're increasing financially. Now, this kind of goes against popular thinking, and this isn't super popular. Like, um, a lot of people think, hey, you know, if you want to get richer or, or increase financially, you need to save. You need to work hard. You need to get your education. You need to kind of hold on to that and once you're in a good place, well, then maybe if you got extra, you'd be generous. Right? You ever hear that? I've heard it in church circles. I've sat in Sunday school discussions where, um, you know, it was said that, well, God doesn't expect you to give offerings and tithe if you can't afford it. Don't give tithes if you can't afford it. Well, let me tell you something. That's the way you come out is to give, is to sow, is to tithe. Because this is, these are laws of increase God has set in motion. This is the word of God here. It says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give. So that's an indication there is a part we should give. So one's withholding what he should give and only suffers want. So if you want to be impoverished, withhold. Don't give. Hold on to that because you're going to need it. Yeah, you probably will need it. <laughs> like, for real. If you desire financial uh, increase, you be generous. You give freely. This is a law of increase. Verse 25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And the one who waters will himself be watered. So, you know, you're looking after the needs of others. Someone's going to look after your needs. You look to be a blessing to others. And someone will be a blessing to you. This is called sowing and reaping. Any, any other scriptures come to mind here? Give and it shall be given to you. Now, just to point out here, or maybe I should ask a question, what makes your gift generous or not? You ever think about that? So it's not about the amount. Um, it's about what you had available to you and the heart you gave it in. You know, you could have... There's individuals in this world, on this planet, that could give a $100,000 gift, and it would be stingy. And then there's individuals that would give a dollar gift, and it would be extreme generosity. So it's not about the amount. It's about what you had available to you and the heart you gave it in. All right. So how many would like to participate with God's laws of increase and come up? So here's ways to do it. 
So this is what this is. This is me. Say this is me. I'm going to increase. I'm going to participate with the Lord. I'm going to participate with His laws of increase. Amen. All right. Well, let's take a hold of your tithe, your offering, and let's pray over it. Father, we're so grateful to be your children tonight. We're thankful for your presence. We're just thankful that you love us and that you're for our success and that you want only good for us. So we just present you the tithes this evening. We present our offerings. I ask you to bless it. May it bring a harvest to the accounts of the people and ask you to meet every need in this house according to your word. In Jesus' name, and amen. And the ushers can pass the baskets, and the people will give to the Lord and not to man.